0: Well, amen to that. The victory is ours in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are sick and diseased, there is a victory that is yours in Christ. You will be given a body without sickness, without pain, without suffering. For those of you who are grieving and mourning the loss of loved ones, there is a day when every tear will be wiped from your eye, and the victory of Christ Jesus, who is the resurrection, will be known by you. For those of you who are suffering under the temptation and the vileness of this world and the wickedness and the corruption of the enemy, there is a day coming where there will be nothing but holiness in you. He is the overcomer, and he wants to share that with you. So we sing hallelujah to him. What a glorious, glorious opportunity to sing unto his greatness. From the start to the finish of this service, may Jesus be exalted. So Father, we pray as we open your counsel of your word today and hear the instruction that is given to us by the teaching and the moving of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would find our hearts ready and sensitive to hear your voice and be quiet enough in our spirit to not worry about this afternoon, to not worry about this evening, to not worry about what tomorrow will hold, but in the quietness of our spirit, allow you to speak in this holy moment. May there be a holy hush that will come over us. And in the end, we will do what you say for us to do. And we pray that it would be honorable to Jesus. Now, Father, please speak to us by your spirit. Fill us with your word. Mark us with your grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray amen Kay and I were reading our bibles this week uh, throughout the week as you have been as well and we were in our betterbrook reading plan which means that we've been reading the gospel accounts and really taken aback by all the words of instruction that jesus was giving and all this authoritative teaching that was coming out of him and the miraculous works that he was doing wondrous signs and miracles course all that testifying that he is who he claimed to be the son of God God in the flesh being revealed to us and as we're reading as we're doing as you're doing marking as we're going and highlighting those things that the spirit of God is moving into our hearts and our minds and dwelling on we're trying to make application and make response to him but we're also looking at the people that are around Christ as he's doing all these things. All this teaching and all this miraculous works, we're just watching who all's there. And we're really insightful to that. We're recognizing that some of them are there because they have real need. They need a touch of the Savior. They have disease and they have great affliction. And they're demonically oppressed and even some possessed. And Jesus heals them. And oh, what a wow moment that is. Can you imagine being in the crowd and Maybe you or your loved ones being touched by him and being radically changed. You walk in as a leper and you walk out as one who is absolutely clean. You walk with one who thinks you're on your last breath and you walk away with the breath of God. What a miraculous day that was. And some were gathered around just because of that. Others were gathered because they were just wowed by him. Just couldn't quite get enough of seeing what was happening. In fact, there were some times that they would say, show us a miracle, as if they hadn't seen the hundreds of miracles of the day. I'm taken aback by the fact that Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus all their family members, which I think is in the the tens of thousands. And he probably uh, did so with such joy. They were marveling at that, but yet at the end of that, they come to him, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say, why don't you show us a miracle? (laughs) He's like, are you kidding me? Some are there because they're wowed by him. Some are there because they're physically hungry, and they know Jesus feeds people. We just read yesterday about him feeding 4,000. We read other times about him feeding the tens of thousands. And maybe they're there hoping that this will be one of those days. His bread is better than our bread, and his fish certainly tastes better than our fish. Maybe they wanted to be fed. Others are there because they are disciples. He's their rabbi, and he is teaching them. And as a disciple, they're listening, and they're trying to apply his teaching to their life. They're trying to become like him, that's what a, a rabbi does. He teaches not just with words, but with life. And they're surrounding him as a follower of his because they want the life that he lives. But then we're also insightful to, that there are some around him who are not for him. There are some who are rebellious against him. They just outright deny him and decline, decline the words that he is saying to those around them. They're scribes and Pharisees for the most part. They're lawyers who study the Word of God and make rules about the Word of God and try to make sure everybody obeys those rules. It's those people who have come out of their hub, which is Jerusalem. Like a state legislature would be in Montgomery or the Senate would be in D.C. So the Pharisees and the scribes would maintain their place in Jerusalem. But they came out of Jerusalem not because they wanted to be among the people, but because they wanted to ridicule and question and even rebuke Jesus. So they come out of Jerusalem, they come to the small villages, and they find some really disturbing things as far as they're concerned. In fact, when we were reading in our readings this past week, John 6 kind of jumped out at us. In John 6, Jesus was teaching in the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee in a little village, fishing village, called Capernaum. I've stood there on the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus was teaching in John 6. I looked around and saw the relics of the pillars that once held that vast structure. And I imagined Jesus standing there in that synagogue and he began to teach. Now, this was a teaching that was difficult. He talked about the sacrifice of his body He talked about his blood. And Jesus was telling them that by faith they must receive both his body and blood. In other words, it would be his sacrifice that would pay the penalty of God's requirement for justice against sin. It would be his blood that would wash sins away. And he told them, you've got to take my flesh and take my blood in you. Now he's speaking in figurative terms about a spiritual matter, but they just couldn't quite grab a hold of that. And they put it in summary form. If I were going to summarize their words, it would be something like this. He's talking crazy, and we're not going to be with him anymore. In their words, it was different. Jesus approached them in the grumbling and the complaining that they had, which they sort of summarized to say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can receive this, they're saying. Now, Jesus understood what they were saying, and he certainly knew their thoughts And so he calls them out on it. In John 6, verse 61, he says, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now that was really offensive to them. Now all their life they have been thinking rules and regulations duty and responsibility, requirements. What does God require of us? In fact, for the scribes and the Pharisees, they had come up with a huge list of that. Now, I know I'm about to date some of you, but how many of you have had in your home world book encyclopedias or Encyclopedia Britannica? Oh, you're a bunch of old fogies, aren't you? (laughs) Those who are younger here, which there are a number of you, are scratching your head saying, I think I saw that at my great-granddad's house. (laughs) But if we were going to take all the traditional teachings of the elders, those doctrines that have been passed down from generation, and put them in books, it would be about the size of World Book Encyclopedia. We're talking about a whole lot of words. The tradition was, I don't think it's absolutely true, but the tradition was that God gave Moses instruction that he did not write down, and Moses then exchanged that to the next generation, and that generation told it to the next. The only problem with all that is that each generation added their own words so that you just had volumes and volumes of books teachings mishnah the talmud those requirements of the elders of how we're to live as jewish people if we were in the first century so our whole life would have been given to am i doing it well Am I doing it as God requires me to do it? Am I doing it under the instruction of the elders as they told us to to do it? So when Jesus says things like this, the flesh is of no help, he is saying something that completely smacks against their tradition. What do you mean the flesh is no help at all? That's how I show my duty and my responsibility to God. How can it be that there is no help? What Jesus is doing is saying, it's not the duty and the responsibility that is going to transform you. It's my words that you're finding so difficult that will transform you. My spiritual life is given to you in these words. In fact, he says that. These words that I have spoken, because he is the eternal word of God, right? These words that Jesus spoke are words that bring spirit and life to us. So, really, what the elders have been doing is trying to shape up it's the way you do things in the flesh that will bring you to spiritual life and life with God. But Jesus flips that around and he's saying, Absolutely not. It's you taking my flesh, it's you taking my blood. It's your faith in me that will provide for you, not your flesh. And I, by my words, will bring into you life, and it will be spiritual life as well. So he makes us of us who are spiritually dead, which is all of us, and brings us to life. So the flesh doesn't help. That really was radical to them. Then he goes on in Luke 6, verse 64, to say, But there are some of you who do not believe. In fact, he goes on to say, I've known from the beginning who wasn't going to be a believer, and I've known from the beginning who was going to betray me. Then he says in verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So many of them just packed up and left. Just decided it wasn't worth following Jesus anymore. To put it bluntly, the show was over. All the miracles were to point towards a spiritual significance, and if the spiritual significance doesn't jive, then there's no need for the miracles anymore. If you can't have faith in the spirit life by the words of Jesus, you're not going to have faith in the transforming temporary life either. So the show was over. It was done. They were packing up. Those who had been interested in Jesus as their provider, their healer, were no longer interested if it meant the provision would ultimately end up on the execution cross. They were coming to a summary. This guy is moving towards the execution by the Romans. And I'm not going to go with him. I'm not going to pursue a cross life. I'm not going to pursue a life of denial. And so they packed up and left. The teachings of Jesus didn't quite fit in their old way of thinking, did it? And Jesus said it was that way. He said, my teachings are new, and they're not going to fit in your old stretched-out wineskins. They're going to rupture that. My teachings will not fit in your old established traditions and your rules and regulations. They just won't fit there. My teachings are filled with grace and truth. So, he says, the flesh is of no help at all. Now, there's obvious tension between the Pharisees and the scribes who really taught and expressed all these doctrines and ways and rules to the people. There's real tension. So they leave out of Jerusalem the central place for them, and they come to the place of the village where Jesus is and in the region where he is, and they're doing so that he might uh, hear from them. He, He might be challenged by them, that he might be proven wrong by these rebellious people. So, knowing there's so much at stake... Jesus confronts them. He brings it to the forefront. He is certainly not intimidated by these religious professionals. And so he brings the attention back to them. He didn't back down. In fact, he pointed out the invalidity of their self-righteous ways. He pointed out the folly of their rules, thinking that their flesh is going to matter in their spiritual life like that. He went ahead and described them as being blind spiritually. And because they, the leaders, are blind spiritually, that they are leading others towards spiritual blindness, and they'll all fall into a pit of destruction. Jesus just bears it out. He does so in a loving way, because only someone who is unloving will allow people to remain in their ignorance or in their untruth. So Jesus moves them to what is truth, which is where we come to our passage today in Matthew chapter 15. So focus with me in your Bibles as we read Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now it looks like the accusation is on the disciples. But remember, Jesus is the rabbi to his disciples, which means they're doing what they're instructed to by him. So although they're pointing to the disciples as not following the tradition that they had established... They are pointing to Jesus, who basically should have taught them, as they say. And so they're asking, Why is it that your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother... What, would you ha- what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. For this sake of your tradition, you have made a void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, But Peter explained to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you not also without understanding? Do you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth and proceeds from the heart, this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, false uh, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And every third grader in the house said amen to that. (laughs) I really am grateful that you're all here today. You're here for various reasons, but my guess is that we're here for much of the same reasons that many were surrounding Jesus in AD 30. Maybe some of you are in need And you recognize Jesus is the great provider. And so you've come into this place with need. And you're wanting him to touch you. I'd say that's a great place to start. Some of you here, because you're wowed by him, by his presence. Maybe as we sing certain songs like him being the great victor, the one who shares victory with others, maybe... The hairs on the back of your head just stand up. And you feel those goosebumps all over your neck. Maybe that's why you're here. You're wanting that kind of moment. Or maybe it's a truth that just settles and you say, that's the word of God. And you want to be near because of that. And so you're here. I'd say that's a good place to start. But may I encourage you not to let that be where you stop. Press further. Press into the presence of Christ. Press into the provision of Christ. Make your needs known, and yes, they might be physical. Yes, they may be that you need help relationally, or yes, you might need some edge taken off emotionally, but you have a deeper need, and the deeper need is beyond the temporary. It goes to the eternal. You've got a need deep within your soul Some of you are here for various reasons, and I encourage you to seek out Christ in those things. Allow the Holy Spirit to reveal as you're seeking him the darkness of your heart by this revelation of light. You and I definitely need to be transformed by the glorious light of God, by his spirit, by his word. In other words, for both groups, whether you're here because you're in need or you're here because you want to be wowed, for all groups, I say, press into Christ. Seek him while he may be found. There might be a number of you who are here because you're a follower of Jesus. You've been transformed by him. And you're following him. You love him. And you love to obey him. And he said... Come together in corporate worship. Don't deny each other that opportunity. You speak encouragement to one another. You sing not only to God, but you sing in a way that others are encouraged by your singing. And you're here because you want to be shaped. You're here because you want to be connected to the body of Christ. Because you love the church as Christ loved the church. And you're here because of that. For Whatever reasons you're here, let Christ be in the center of that doing so, we can all experience genuine salvation. We can all experience the renewed heart in him. Be reminded that Jesus was meeting physical needs. Yes, he was healing people. He was providing food for people. But all that was pointing to a significant eternal truth. For those who were freed from their blindness, there was always a permeating truth that Jesus could give spiritual sight to the blind spiritually. To those who are being fed with his bread, let the record show Jesus was not just feeding stomachs, he was providing the fullness of people by himself in his spirit, feeding them the eternal word of God. For every miracle, there was a demonstration of what God had really sent his son to accomplish, accomplish and that was our wholeness for all eternity. So may that be our pursuit as well. The 1st century or the 21st century, it's pretty much alike. Jesus is revealing himself as Savior and the one who can make people whole. However, not everyone is interested in being made whole by Jesus. In the 1st century, there were scribes and Pharisees, these professional religious people, who really were anti-Christ didn't believe him. They rebelled against him, denied him, and led others to do the same. And during his public ministry, this group, led by the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus began to speak to them with great love, but with great sternness. In fact, Jesus began to quote, in our passage today, Isaiah. He brings it to the current generation, saying, "'This people honors me with their lips.'" But their heart is far from me in vain they do worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men now think for a moment this is really what aggravated these professional religious people all the more what Jesus is saying is it is not your duty or your responsibility that's the problem it's your heart the heart is the problem in fact the heart the Bible says, is corrupt. It's deceitful. You were born that way. It wasn't learned. You received it from your parents, and so did I, and so did they, all the way back to the sin of Adam. So Jesus is saying the heart is the problem. Now, from the outside, one might say, what the words are of the Pharisees and the scribes, that's good, that's right. And the worship of those men, that's good and that's right. And the doctrines of those men, that's good and that's right. But what Jesus is saying, it's not about their words, their worship, or their doctrine. It's about their heart. Because if their heart is not right, then their words and their worship and their doctrine is all wrong. Now that's important for us to get. Because you and I were, most of us were raised in the South. We were raised with a culture of church. We grew up in church. I've known nothing but church. What I've learned is I can say the right words, I can worship the right way, and I can even teach the right words. But if my heart is not right, then it's altogether wrong. What I needed is the same thing that you need and the Pharisees need and the scribes need. You need a new heart. For it's out of the heart comes pure words and pure worship and right doctrine. So our teaching today is, oh God, transform our heart. It's not going to be about transform our duty, transform our words, transform our worship. It's about transform our heart. And as we are transformed in heart, then God begins to transform the things we say. And the way we worship, and when we worship, and how we worship, even on Monday morning heading into work, it's worship. Even at work, it's worship. When you come home in the evening, it's worship. God will do that in a transformed heart way, and the right doctrines you'll settle into, because he'll write his word on your heart, and your heart and his words will align perfectly. Let there be a transformation of your heart. Now let me back up to the narrative that we're in today. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 men and all their families. I'm believing it's to be tens of thousands of people that he's fed. He's done so, not by going down to Costco or Sam's and picking up some stuff, he's done so with just one person's meal. Five small cakes of bread and two fish. And after blessing it, it multiplies in the hands of the disciples and they feed the entire mass of people and when they finish the disciples go around and they gather up 12 baskets of leftovers it's amazing how liberal jesus is how generous he is he's a giver in extraordinary proportion but he's also making provision i don't know this to be true this is extra biblical i don't know this to be true but i'm just guessing that the disciples took one of those baskets I would, wouldn't you? <laughs> Why, sure. And off in the distance, the Pharisees and the scribes are seeing the disciples eat the fish and the bread from the baskets. And they're doing so with unwashed hands. Now, every mother in here is cringing right now, but let me just release you. This is not about hygiene. Hygiene. This is not about eating with dirty hands. In fact, the idea was that the Jewish people were made clean by their obedience to the law. And they were made clean by their obedience to the tradition of the elders. And so they had heard the rabbis' teachings. They had heard what the scribes and the Pharisees put together as being the lawyers and the ones who practiced the law of God well. They had heard those things, and they believed that they could be made right with that. But that everything in the world had the tendency to be unclean. In fact, if they touched those things that were unclean, then they needed to ceremonially wash. Now, that was not in the scripture. It was for the priests, but it was not for the common people like me and you. But the tradition of the elders applied it to the people as well. And so it was around the world you might touch something that was unclean and that would make you spiritually unclean and you needed to wash that off you touch somebody like randy gunner a gentile you're definitely unclean and you need to wash that off every gentile was that way it's the reason why they wouldn't go into your house and eat wouldn't enter into your dwelling or mine because it would make them unclean when i was in israel I noticed in a public restroom that there were pictures by the sink. Now, I wanted desperately to take out my phone and take pictures, but only weirdos take pictures in bathrooms, right? So I didn't do that. Instead, I waited till this message, and I pulled a picture from the Internet and put it on the screen for you so you can see somewhat what I was, talk- what I was seeing and what I'm talking about. There were multiple sinks, and there were multiples of these, and they were chained down so no Jew would take them home. And so I was there in the washroom. I washed my hands with the running water and with soap, and then I dried them with a clean towel, and I went out. I couldn't wait because Uval, who's our tour guide, now my friend, is a Messianic Jew. He's a Jewish person who believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's dedicated his life to him. So I said, Uval, what what are all those pictures there? This is just my naivete. What are all those pictures that are there by the sink? Is that like a common way for them to drink because I'm a guy who doesn't drink after anybody, can't imagine having a common cup in a bathroom of all places. He said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what that is at all. That's a ceremonial cup. I'm like, wow. You've got soap. You've got running water. You've got clean towels. How much more clean do you need to get? Well, for an Orthodox Jew, you need to get more clean because Gentiles, have used that bathroom. And so with the same running water that I washed my hands, and they did too, they'd fill that pitcher and pour it over their hands and be ceremonially cleansed. Now, pardon the pun, but Jesus says hogwash. (laughs) All that work and all that cleansing that God had prescribed for the priest was all to point to the need for Jesus to take away sins. You're not going to get clean by pouring some water over your hands, especially if you're getting your water from the kusa. (laughs) (laughs) There's no ritual, there's no rite that you and I can do, no practice that will bring about cleansing of our heart. In fact, Jesus says, it's not what comes into you that's the problem, it's what's coming out of you that's the problem. Let me pose a modern day that you might think about the tradition of men and how it gets elevated to something it shouldn't. In the 90s, there was a group of people that were Bible thumpers, as we'll call them, and I was probably one of them, who would just decry that going to an R-rated movie was a sin. And so uh, they were sort of the the theater police, if you will. In fact, to this day, Kay and I don't see many movies. We're just not in the practice of doing that. It's not necessarily a conviction of my heart as much as it is that I'm a tightwad and 45 bucks for a movie and some popcorn just doesn't make sense to me. In a couple of years, I can see it for free. (laughs) I'm not advocating going to see movies. and I'm certainly not advocating going to see an R-rated movie. But just because it's R-rated and you and I go see it doesn't mean that we are defiled. It might. Case in point, The Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson's movie came out, and to my delight, it was rated R. Which means all those people who were trapped in all the rules and the regulations of not being defiled had quite a problem. Will they go see an R-rated movie and be defiled? See how that tradition just lifted right up there? Listen, I've been a Bible thumper before, but I also went to see that R-rated movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I wasn't defiled by it. In fact, I was very moved by it. And it moved me to love my Savior all the more deeply and understand the sacrifice that he paid. Even the depiction is minute in comparison to the reality, but it gave me a hint of what it must be like. I even bought hundreds of tickets and provided them here at this church so that we could encourage more people to go see the R-rated movie. For some, they would say, you have defiled them. But that's not what was happening at all. See, if we're not careful, we will be Bible thumpers and decry R-rated movies, even The Passion of the Christ, and all the while play out this imaginary scene in our mind that is absolutely perverse more than what an r-rated movie would be if we're not careful we'll shout like military police would against those who are imposing themselves in a place they shouldn't be it's restricted and we'll be there calling out to those who go see films but all the while in the privacy of our home with the door locked we watch the free week of showtime that comes through or maybe hbo or the mature audience on tv All the while, while we might be pointing out the sin of somebody else, we might be engaging in the sin in our own heart. And as long as we're not showing it, then it must be okay. But Jesus calls us out. And he said, Randy, it's not what's coming from the outside in that's your problem. It's what's in you that's wanting to come out that's the problem. He calls out the Pharisees. Now, he does it by using one of their traditions that the elders have been talking about, particularly the Pharisees. It's a tradition called Corban. And the tradition is that while I'm alive, I'm going to dedicate all my resources upon my death to the temple. And I'm going to declare my resources Corban. Now, that all sounds great, and often it is. In fact, we've had people to do that very thing, and I really encourage it. I remember Pam Bailey dying not that long ago of brain cancer. Long before her battle with cancer, she had written out in her last will and testament her desire that every possession she owned would be the property of Meadowbrook Baptist Church. And we liquidated all those resources, and we invested them in the kingdom work of Jesus Christ. And she's not the only one to have ever done that. It really is a beautiful picture of somebody recognizing that all things that they possess are entrusted to them by God. And they determine that at the end of their days they are not going to be able to carry that into heaven with them. So they say, give it all to the church for the kingdom of God and may the kingdom expand because of it. May the gospel be more widespread and may the name of Jesus be known because of it. And then they died And it was all used for the glory of Jesus. And upon their arrival into heaven, they realized that all that treasure that had been sent forward by the intention of their heart was awaiting them. It's a really beautiful picture. But in the first century, it wasn't so pretty. In the first century, it wasn't just that somebody was wanting to be generous to the temple. It was that someone was stingy with love and resources to their parents. So if there was an elderly parent or two in need financially, and they came to the son and said, we need your help, we're struggling. And the son might be able to say, I'm sorry, all my resources are committed to God. Carbon. So at my death, all the resources will go to God. It's already allotted to God. I can use it as I will, but there will be none for you. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. Best of luck to you. And Jesus is saying, you've allowed that tradition that's promoted by you to be elevated greater than that of the law. For what has the law of God said? The law of God says to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If your neighbor is not your parents, I don't know who it is. He says to honor your parents. He says the ones who don't provide for their parents ought to be taken out and killed. But Jesus said, You've allowed your tradition and your teaching to come over that of the law of God. You are so hypocritical. The word hypocrisy means to hide behind a mask. And what he's saying is, You're just hiding. The real you is exposed by your heart. You're just hiding. And all your rules and all your regulations and all your traditions, you're just hiding. In the end, your heart is just as dark as every other sinner in rebellion against me. And Jesus has a way of calling us out, doesn't he? Calling us to truth. He does that not because he's mean-spirited, but the opposite, because he loves. It takes a lot of love to tell somebody truth even when they know that it potentially is gonna cause a severed relationship. It takes a lot of love to do that. Jesus had a lot of love for folks, and he still does. So let me ask you, how's your heart? That's what Jesus is calling them to do. Examine their heart. How's your heart? Now, before you answer, let me reframe the question. Your heart is revealed by your mouth. So how's your mouth? Oh, now, preacher, preacher, there might be a word or two that slips out of my mouth every now and then. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. The exposure of our heart comes in our words. So how about when the gossip's going on? Is your heart exposed? How about when somebody's tearing down somebody else? Is your heart exposed? How about in your pride, and your braggadocious ways? Is your heart exposed? How about in the planning and the scheming and the lying and the cheating and all those ways that you're trying to just get ahead, get one up, get the better? Is your heart exposed? What Jesus is doing is saying, it's the heart that's the issue. What can I do? Absolutely nothing. It must be destroyed. It must be nailed to the cross and die with its last beat there on the cross in order to receive the new heart that is available to you in Christ Jesus by his resurrection. What you must do, surrender yourself to him. And he will not make your heart new to be improved. He will make your heart altogether new as it has never been before. Something that only he can do but make you to be born from above by heaven. I wanted to share multiple times with you this section by J.C. Ryle. He speaks about the heart. And what Ryle does is he takes a lot of the culminated works of the Bible talking about the heart, and he puts it into one paragraph. And I couldn't do it any better, so I'm just going to read what he wrote. Through the Holy Spirit, we need Jesus to give us broken and contrite hearts, Psalm 51. Circumcised hearts, that is, cutting away the old sinful flesh, Romans 2. Clean hearts, Hebrews 10. Pure hearts, 1 Peter 1. New hearts, Ezekiel 36. Sincere hearts, Ephesians 6, so that we might believe from the heart, Ephesians 3. And obey from the heart, Deuteronomy 11, so that we might have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, Ephesians 3. Only God can do that kind of work. So no matter how sinful or spiritually dead your heart is, it can be made new in Christ Jesus. There's great hope for all of us. It's the reason why he left heaven and came to earth to provide the new heart. Now, if you would stay, I'd preach another four hours. But you ain't gonna stay, so I'm not gonna do it. But I put together some bullet points that I'd like you to circle back to, if you would, over the next few hours or maybe a few days. And if I read them and God's provoking you in some way to circle back to them, maybe you'll just mark it and come back to it. But if I had a whole lot of time, I would teach these things as well. I'd say if our teaching and expectations cannot be clearly cited with the Bible, chapter and verse, then we should seriously consider its validity. Are the teachings and expectations valid? You'll know by them coming from the Bible, and everything else ought to be questioned. I'm not saying it's altogether bad, I'm just saying it ought to be questioned. Secondly, a defiled heart is not a heart that worships God. In fact, it's far from Him. Maybe today your heart was not given in worship, maybe it's been a while since your heart's been given to worship. Not just corporate worship but throughout the week you don't see the life to be lived as a way of giving worship to god if that's the case for you it may be that your heart is the problem and you're far from him to be humble enough to say god it's my heart i know it's my heart so renew my heart number three Heart conditioning happens far more often when listening to God rather than speaking to Him. I'm just going to be vulnerable for a moment and tell you, in my prayers, there are way too many words. What I need is to be quiet and listen. Rarely is my heart transformed while I'm talking. It is more apt to be transformed while I'm listening to the Spirit of God. God is not impressed by religious accomplishments. Hallelujah to that. Instead, He is attentive when we're humble. The gospel of Jesus is the way of escape for those who are religiously weary. Are you tired? Are you weary? then come to the gospel. It's good news. It's filled with grace. It's not about duty and and responsibility. It's about coming to life in Him. He will give you a new nature, the nature of His Son. And as you come to Jesus by His Spirit, He will transform your heart and He will begin to work out of you this salvation that is yours. Honoring God and others must be the intent of a renewed heart before it is the action of the body. So before I start doing something, I'm asking God to do something to me. Change my heart, God. And then my words and my actions will change. Pray for your spiritual leaders that we will be given sight by God in whom we are fully dependent. I wanted to work this into my message because I thought it was really cool. But did you know that everyone has blind spots physically? You can Google it when you're at your computer. Now, you'll look really weird when you're taking the test because you've got to put yourself in close proximity to the screen and back up and go forward. So do it when nobody else is around. But take the test, and you'll find blind spots in your sight. I'm just being transparent. I have spiritual blind spots. And I'm asking you to pray to God that I would be able to see Clearly. Pray for the rest of your leaders that we would be given spiritual sight by God. And as you pray for us, pray for yourself that God would give you sight as well. And then finally, everyone must consider have I been spiritually planted by God? If not, I will be rooted up, or in our term, uprooted. And if so, then I will bear fruit and a glorious harvest unto Christ. Now let's pause and pray. Lord, I've spoken many words in this message, maybe to the point that people have grown tired of listening. But Father, I have only scratched the surface of its truth. So by your Spirit, I pray that you're settling the truths of the passage into the minds and the hearts of the people in this room, those listening on the radio or those watching on streaming service or listening later. Oh, God, it's our heart. Our heart is exposed by our mouth, by our hands, by our feet. Please, Lord, would you give those who are in spiritual need a new heart? Would you, by faith in them, help them to see that Jesus Christ, your Son, who is altogether righteous, took their dirty, sinful heart with him to the cross and nailed it there in order that they might have new life, resurrected life, righteous and glorious life. And would that faith transform them with righteousness? Oh God, today I pray this would be the day of salvation. For many of us, Lord, we have not allowed your renewal to continue in us. So we're praying that you would renew our heart and the evidence would be in our mouth. We pray, Lord, that the rules and the duties and the requirements that are framed up by men would pale in comparison to the law and the word that you have given to us. Help us to be obedient with the nature that is given to us. I pray for the ones who need saved to be saved today, Lord, that this would be the day of faith for them. I pray for the one who's wandered away and their heart is not given to you, that this would be the coming home day for them. We pray in the end that we will give glory and honor to King Jesus who makes this newness possible and in whose name we pray. Amen. In a moment,